Okay, well, hello and welcome to another Paro seminar. As you know, every month I give these seminars on YouTube. And what I'm doing for the next five uh, is something a little bit different. Um, I'm recording this in a cocktail bar called Rattlebag in Belfast. And I'm going to do a five part seminar that is trying to look at the theory of this idea of Church of the Contradiction, which I want to get going sometime in 2024. So I'm going to do five uh, talks that kind of explore the theory and the practice of the idea. And as I say, then from that, I want to kind of try to recreate a type of event. Now, what I want to do is start with a story that I've already told a couple of times before. Um, whenever people are speaking, this idealist kind of art form of public speaking, you usually get an illustration to kind of flesh out an idea and then you get rid of the illustration and you're always finding new and different illustrations. But in a materialist art like uh, sculpture or music um, or painting, it's the opposite. You get one artifact and that stays the same and you come back to it again and again and over the years it changes and you interact with it differently. Uh, and so I'm kind of more influenced by that is I like to find an illustration or a story and allow that to deepen and develop. And so you tell the story again and again and take something different out of it. So the story I want to tell is a story that I told probably the first time I ever spoke publicly. And uh, it kind of meant a naive thing to me. So I'm going to tell the story and I'll tell you the first way I interpreted it. Then recently I interpreted it a second time uh, and a third, and then I'm going to look at it a fourth time. So it's the story of these three people who all die on the same day. This uh, fundamentalist preacher, this evangelical pastor, and this mystic. And they all get to heaven. And as we all know, you have to get an interview with Jesus before you get in. So they're sitting there, St. Peter comes along. He looks at the mystic first and says, right, come up meet Jesus, have your interview. He goes into the interview room, the little signs turn round, and he's in there for about an hour. And then he comes out with a smile on his face. He's going, ah, I knew I was wrong. I knew I was wrong. And he walks into heaven. And then it's the evangelical pastor's turn. He gets up, dusts himself down, walks into the room, the little signs turn round, and he's in there for a few hours. And then the door flies open and he comes out and he's distraught. And he says, how could I have been so wrong? And then he walks into heaven. And finally, it's the fundamentalist turn. So the fundamentalist gets up, walks confidently into the room, the little signs turn round, and he's in there for about three or four hours. And finally, the doors fly open and Jesus comes out and says, how could I have been so wrong? Right now, it's a great wee story. Um, and the thank you, uh, the the naive reading of that uh, when I first told it is that we're supposed to see ourselves as the evangelical, right? We often think we're right about something. We see the world in a certain way and we hold on to that, especially in our youth. And we should really identify with the mystic. As we get older, we hold our beliefs more lightly. Uh, we realize that we're probably wrong about what, how we see ultimate reality. And there's something beautiful and humble about that. So that's the naive reading of the story. I think that's the, the straightforward reading of the story. But recently, I've been retelling it. And I've been retelling it 
actually thinking that we should be more like the fundamentalist. That the fundamentalist is the really interesting figure in this story. Right? Now the fundamentalist goes into the interview room and is questioning God, questioning the absolute. And finally, the absolute goes, I don't know. Now, in the talk I gave two weeks ago, I went into that in detail. So that was the reading I gave or in two Paro seminars ago, that this is a move from epistemological unknowing to ontological unknowing. Epistemological unknowing means I don't know ultimate reality. Ontological unknowing is ultimate reality does not know itself. So you can go back, you can kind of look at that seminar, but the idea is that there is an inherent antagonism or asymmetry to reality itself. Uh, in biology, we call that evolution. The non-at-oneness of the biological organism with itself that creates the complexity of life. Uh, in politics, we can call it democracy. The non-at-oneness of the political body that generates civilization. In physics, we can call it uh, the uncertainty principle, the idea that uh, reality, uh, you cannot know the position and the velocity of subatomic particles. There's an inherent fuzziness within reality itself. And in psychology, it's the unconscious, the idea that we are not at one with ourselves. There is an inherent uh, uh, oscillation or antagonism in consciousness, right? So there's different names for this. But ultimately, it's the idea that at the very heart of everything, there is spontaneity, there is novelty, there is a type of, um, there's a type of oscillation that prevents things from being one with themselves. Reality is not one, it's not two, it's not multiple. Reality is a type of not oneness. So that was that, right? And then in the last Paris seminar, I looked at the fundamentalist. And I try to argue that the fundamentalist's encounter with this truth is both disturbing, but also the very root of salvation. Because if you want to know that reality is divided, you can find that in mathematics, Gödel's incompleteness theorem, you can, you can look at it in philosophy. But what I'm interested in is that there's something salvatory about this insight. It's not just a philosophical idea that reality is divided. There is something about that insight that when we take it into our bodies, when we encounter it, it is fundamentally disturbing. It is fundamentally terrifying, um, but it is also something that can free us. So this is not an enlightenment like you get in the kind of New Age sense where enlightenment is something beautiful. It's going up into the mountains and feeling some sort of freedom, getting rid of some sort of shackles. It is fundamentally a subjective destitution, right? This it is a type of death, this type of encounter with the radical um, self-division of reality is not something that we find easy. It's something that is deeply, deeply disturbing. Um, <clears throat> but it is salvatory. And so in the last, and I'm gonna kind of try to kind of expand that now, and then we'll get into the third way I want to look at this. Um, if you think about it in terms of uh, love or in terms of um, commodities, buying commodities, right? We often, we, we get obsessed with the idea that there is an object or a person who can fulfill us. We all kind of probably know that feeling to some extent, that there's a certain thing, a certain job, a certain product that 
we, no, we don't consciously think this, but we kind of like act towards it as if if we get that new iPhone, if we get that new job, if we are with that person, then we'll get rid of the alienation that we feel within ourselves. We will get rid of this sense of anxiety that we feel. Right, so we have this sense of some object that will satisfy. The problem is every time we get the object, it's dissatisfying. Every time you get the thing that you think will work, it doesn't work. The satisfaction is fleeting. Now, what often happens here is at first our libidinal investment is getting the object, getting the thing. And then we get the next thing, we get the next thing, we get the next thing. And then very subtly, we start to get our enjoyment, not from the object, but from this continual failure to get the object. So to give you an example, someone in the military might be in the military sacrificing for their society. So they go in, they join the army and they go, I am going to sacrifice and potentially even sacrifice my life in order that people can have a normal family life can go to the park and go to schools, can have, you know, their, have their American way or their British or Irish way, right? I will sacrifice for that. And then subtly what can happen is then you start to libidinize the sacrifice itself and you start to enjoy the war, the conflict. You start to actually, that is where your enjoyment lies and so you cannot then go back into civilian life because you've now weirdly the very thing that you sacrifice you sacrificed your enjoyment and now you enjoy the sacrifice itself in some respects this is what we see within capitalism right so technically what you have you can imagine a world where you have a commodity you, you make something right you create something then you sell it and you sell it to get money to then buy another commodity. And this is called CMC. You have a commodity, you make something, you sell it in the market to be able to buy another commodity that is useful to you. But then something interesting happens in modernity where it swaps around. And now we have money, commodity, money. It's just where you start to get money and you invest it to make commodities in order to get more money. So now the focus is not on objects, but the abstract uh, uh, collection and acceleration of capital itself. And that move from, from the object to the infinite um, is very, very subtle, but, um, but it kind of like, um, but it's very, very profound and very real. I have a friend actually who was in hedge funds, very, very brilliant person. And he made a lot of money. But what he said is, was the money was not of interest in terms of what it could buy. He just became really obsessed with the number increasing, the amount of capital increasing, the amount of money increasing. Divorced from what it could buy, there was now a libidinal investment in this ongoing, infinite, uh, unending process which causes a lot of dissatisfaction because you're dissatisfied if you get the object because it doesn't get rid of your anxiety, it doesn't get rid of your alienation, or you give yourself over to this continual accumulation of something without end, and that is exhausting, right? So then one of the strategies we have to solve this is we fix ourselves on an object 
and we find ways to make sure we never get it. Right, so that's one of the strategies that we have as human beings to do. So the obsessive is attracted to what they cannot have, the person that they cannot be with, um, or the 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 hysteric is the person who is who is only attracted to what's under threat of being taken away. Their desire is evoked by the threat of something being taken away. So the only way that we can enjoy an object is by building some sort of impossibility into it. Right, so. One other way of explaining that is, initially, the infinite is a parasite on the finite, right? So the infinite is a parasite on the finite, which means that in order for this infinite, unending process to happen, it has to suck the blood out of finite products. So that partner doesn't work, that partner doesn't work, that partner doesn't work, that commodity doesn't work, that commodity doesn't work. And it just feeds like a parasite on every object, throwing them aside in order to continue this frenetic death drive. The reverse of that is where the, uh, so that's where the infinite is a parasite in the finite. The opposite of that is where the finite is a parasite on the infinite, which means that the finite object or person can only be desired insofar as it sucks on this infinite impossibility, this something that we cannot have. So what is the solution to that? The solution to that is to realize, it's a kind of, if, that, if it's like a double twist, right? So the first twist is to move from this idea of the object just is, is pointless and we've got this desire for this infinite accumulation. To, so the first twist is then we desire the object, but only because in some way it's impossible. In some way we always self-sabotage, so we never quite get it. And then the second twist is we somehow take that impossibility and we put it into the object. In other words, we realize that there's something in the object that is impossible in itself. That people are like the TARDIS and Doctor Who. They're this fragile frame, but that opens up to an infinite world. And you can't have the object because there's something in the object that can't have itself. There's an inherent mystery or unknowing within the object. Now, the reason why I say that salvation is because when you realize that there is no completeness in the world, that person can't complete you because they're not complete in themselves. That political system can't complete reality, can't make a utopia because alienation is inherent to every political system then that very realization stops your frenetic pursuit. You're kind of more able to get out of this frenetic desire to keep moving forward, to try, keep trying to get the thing. So there's something transformative about that insight. And that's what I was trying to say in the last talk. Which brings me to what I want to say today. And just, I'm just, this is just an introduction to the five parts of this seminar. And this is where we go, how do we create a communion, a group that enacts this insight in which we can experience this insight that alienation is inherent within everything. Um, how, and this is about how do we create a church of the contradiction or a church of grace. Okay, so this is almost like how do we create a church of the freaked out fundamentalist and the hysterical God, right? The freaked out fundamentalist in the story is the one who realizes that everything is divided 
which is, as I say, a traumatic insight. The hysterical God is a way to describe the, real, the reality that everything is not what it is. So the hysteric is the one who feels like an imposter. They always feel that they're not who they are. They always feel like, am I really a teacher? I feel like I'm an imposter teacher. Am I really in love or am I not? Am I really enjoying my work? Am I not? Right. So in the Barbie movie, there's a scene where this is how the Barbie dolls are freed. They're freed because they're hystericized. They begin to experience the contradiction that they are, that they're trying to keep down all the way through the movie. Right. So the main Barbie starts to think about death, starts to feel the contradiction and then tries to avoid it, tries to cover over the contradiction as much as possible. And then at the end, she experiences the reality that she is contradictory and the other Barbie starts to realize that. And that's kind of what wakes them up. Right. So that's the hystericization of the individual where we begin to embrace the fact that we are divided and that the other is divided. Um, this is not this is the idea that we should not try to overcome alienation but we have to redouble it right so religion promises that it can overcome alienation lots of different ways in which it says that if you believe these things you do these practices you consume these products uh, you will overcome anxiety you will find wholeness and completeness and that's ideology ideology ultimately always is promising that antagonism is contingent. Antagonism is not necessary. It's not inherently part of who we are and it can be overcome, right? Ideology has two factors actually. Ideology eternalizes an historical moment. So it says this way in history that we you know, consume and create products, that's the way it should be. That's the way it always has been. This way that we do relationships, that's the way it always has been, the way it always should be. It is justified by nature. It is justified by God. It is justified by reason. But some historical set of circumstances is the way it should be. And then secondly, ideology takes the inherent antagonism within a system and it says, oh, we can get rid of that. That's, that's a contingent thing. Um, to give one example is in contemporary society uh, we can see all sorts of symptoms we might talk about kind of right-wing identitarianism or left-wing identity politics we might talk about various societal issues um, and then we also might talk about uh, the oppression of the working class right these are all different things that we might see happening within contemporary society and we may think that all of these things can be overcome we can fix them uh, and that's what a symptom is a symptom is a contradiction an explosion of some sort of violence some sort of contradiction and as you understand it and pick it apart right you can kind of resolve it but in psychoanalysis there's this idea of what's called a santom which is a contradiction that you can't get rid of without getting rid of the subject itself or a, or an antagonism that you can't get rid of without getting rid of the system itself. So whenever I mentioned all of those things, they're all symptoms except for one, which is the oppression of the working class. That's a santom. If you get rid of that, you get rid of the system because the system is premised inherently on labor never getting its value. So there's this inherent antagonism, but ideology says it's not really, we can get rid of it, we can fix it. Uh, rather than somehow embracing the fact that there's something inherently antagonistic within the system so on a very personal level uh, our anxiety uh, and our alienation is reflected in our fear of death 
It's also reflected in our experience of guilt, which is I am not who I think I should be, right? So there's a sense of a lack within yourself is expressed in guilt or meaninglessness. I'm not doing what I feel would fulfill me. So again, there's a type of lack in that or in jealousy and envy. Jealousy, which is I, the other person has something that is making them fulfilled and I wish I had it. Or envy, which is the other person has a relationship with some object that I wish I had, that they've got that makes them complete that I wish I had. So for example, in jealousy, you desire the partner of the other person and in envy, you desire the type of relationship the person has with their partner. You don't desire their partner, but you desire that type of relationship. These anxieties we want to overcome and ideology promises ways to overcome it. Church of the Contradiction is about creating a space in which alienation is redoubled, not overcome, but redoubled. And by redoubling, what that means is you embrace your sense that you are divided, that you're incomplete, that there is something dissatisfying about existence and that that dissatisfaction is also in every other person and is also in reality itself and also in the absolute itself. And so you are freed from some fantasy of perfection, right? Because depression is so often connected with the idea that there is some perfect world that you could have that you don't. But when you realize that there is no perfect world, that all worlds have antagonism within it, you're freed to you're freed from that oppressive fantasy but more than that you can begin to realize that it's precisely in dissatisfaction and sacrifice and and feeling alienation and anxiety that that's where all the enjoyment of life is that's where all of the uh, meaning of life arises out of in that very space so what i'm trying to do with church of the contradiction is through music and through spoken word and through ritual, we come to put this alienation into language. We begin to enjoy it and experience it. In the music, we feel it. In the words, we understand it. And in the ritual, we incarnate it. And the weird thing about this is it's the opposite of self-help, right? Because in self-help, there's always you want to get from A to B, right? You want to get, you're feeling alienated. You're feeling like something in your life's not working. And self-help gives you steps to get to a place where you're no longer feeling alienated. You're no longer feeling anxious. Well, two problems with that. One is if alienation is where all the enjoyment is and you cannot ultimately overcome it, then self-help will always fail. You'll always find ways of self-sabotaging. You'll always find ways to not do all of the things that you're supposed to do. So it kind of fails on that. And secondly, um, it's it prevents you from seeing that you're actually divided. So in grace, what grace does is grace allows you to space where you go, I don't have to change. I don't have to go from A to B. I can just experience the alienation that I have, experience the dissatisfaction that I have, accept that within myself, find that acceptance within this community, 
And the problem that people will respond to that is, well, then that means you just accept things as they are. If you accept that you're inherently alienated and so is everybody else in this communion and so is the absolute itself, then does that make you completely politically impotent? Does that make you somebody who like, just accepts life as it is? Um, but the reality is something different. If the world that we live in is fueled by this obsessive belief that we can overcome alienation through certain products, through certain activities, through drug use or commodity satisfaction or religion or whatever it is, and we see through that and we're libidinally freed from that, that very act is political. Right? The very act of being able to enjoy your dissatisfaction, to enjoy uh, a freedom from happiness, not a freedom to be happy, but a freedom from happiness, a freedom to not have to frenetically pursue. That not only is an aroma of life, it's not only something that you will find personally liberating. If there are enough people together experiencing that, that can have real world uh, benefits, right? You you kind of ultimately, it's like being in the matrix. You're a battery. Your libidinal desire is feeding the system, but as you unplug from that, and as you're unplugged from this frenetic pursuit of getting more and more and more, um, and you can have communities that gather in that kind of way, that is that is, I think, an act of rebellion in and of itself. And in a talk I gave last week, but I don't think it was recorded this bit, um, I used the example of uh, a salesperson who, if you can imagine a salesperson who doesn't want to sell the product and a buyer who doesn't want to buy it. And so every week these two people come together and the salesperson's showing in the car, but at the end of the day going, but you know what, there's probably a better car coming next week. I think you should save your money, maybe get an upgrade, you know, do that. And the buyer is looking at the car and going, oh yeah, 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 maybe I'll do it. I really like it. I love the test drive, but yeah, I'll wait until next week. I'll see you next week. I'll see you next week. And they perpetually don't buy the product, right? That they realize that their enjoyment is in perpetually revolving around it. Um, there's something actually very uh, powerful in that image, in that image of us being able to directly enjoy not having something, directly enjoy the gap itself. So just to conclude then, religion uh, in its sacred and secular forms is always about trying to overcome alienation, trying to get rid of your anxiety, trying to say that there is wholeness and completeness out there. And so in social media, we see others who seem to have the thing. They seem to be whole and complete. They seem to have the thing that makes them happy. So we fantasize some uncastrated other, some other who has not passed through the crucible of death, right? Who has not gone through castration. In the last talk, I mentioned how there is life after death and we are the evidence of it every subject has passed through castration. In psychoanalysis, the idea is to become a subject is to experience a fundamental loss, the loss of a private enjoyment at your mother's breast. It's a f to, to enter into the subjective world is to have passed through this fundamental death that you uh, are the result of. And so it's not about uh, fearing the death that is going to come. It's simply about accepting the death that's already happened. It's about putting that death into language. And what I'm saying here is the Church of the Contradiction 
is about putting this alienation into language, helping us speak it, helping us enjoy it, helping us um, make a space for it, having a communion around the death of God, that's what Eucharist is, a meal around a fundamental death, a loss in the heart of reality. And by being able to articulate that, by being able to sing about it, put it into ritual and put it into words. This is not simply transformative for us, but is a political act in itself. Okay, so I'll finish there. Um, I've got a few of my friends here. Does anybody have any comments or questions about that? If you wanna... I have a question. Yes, go for it. Yes. So, like, I guess the question is what you're speaking about is if um, what was the book? Uh, alienation. Mm. If alienation is where all the fun is, and the fun, by definition, leads to a sense of satiation of the alienation, what's the sweet spot of provoking the fun? Mm. The laugh. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. What's, what's yeah. the sweet spot of yeah. the how much alienation to provoke? Yes. Oh, yeah, well, that's very good. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the ultimate painkiller. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, that's because here's the, the key of everything I'm saying here is that we have to understand enjoyment, right? We're all getting our fun. I mean, one of the things in psychoanalysis, when you sit down with an analyst and you tell them about this terrible relationship that you're in and you've been in it for years and this person is abusive and this person is terrible and then the analyst says, so, so what are you getting out of it? I'm not getting anything out of it. You go, well, you're in it. You know, like there's, and, and that's, the, that's the terror of that question is that, um, that we often are getting some enjoyment out of our suffering. There's some, there's some, and that's what sexual fantasy in many ways is. It's, a, it's taking a trauma and making it into a tragedy. It's taking a trauma of some sort of, you know, thing in the past which was difficult and painful and somehow sexualizing it, making it into a triumph. So in all of that to start by saying is that we have to understand enjoyment. Everyone's enjoying, right? And people enjoy attacking the right. People enjoy attacking the left. I mean, YouTube is basically just a, an industry of uh, kind of right-wing people attacking left-wing people, left-wing people attacking right-wing people and getting profound enjoyment out of it and yet also suffering, right? Um, so the question I hear you're asking is, how do we enjoy our enjoyment and how do we, yes, how do we enjoy our enjoyment and how does it become a catalyst for emancipation rather than for destruction, like heroin or anything like that? Uh, what is an emancipatory enjoyment and what is reactionary enjoyment? So and I could say a couple of things on that and then come back to me because I may be just going off on a tangent. But that's why you're here. Yes, <laughs> um, uh, you could say that Reactionary enjoyment is always the enjoyment of having a scapegoat for the problem. So the, we all, like, so for the, let's take a fascist as an example, right? It's the ground zero anti-Semitism. The fascist thinks that if you get rid of the Jewish community, everything's going to be returned to an organic whole, right? Hitler was a new age guy. Like a lot of the Nazis were, they believed in organic wholeness, a oneness of the universe, a oneness of the world. Uh, in Mein Kampf, Hitler is constantly talking about this organic society 
and then the virus that you have to get rid of in order to have that wholeness and oneness and that's the jewish community get rid of the virus return to a oneness uh, but of course the fascist community requires the figure of the jew because what they do is they allow you to take all the social antagonisms that exist within the society and blame this group but if ever you were to get rid of that group all it would do is it would expose that the social antagonisms are actually in the society itself. So in Russia, when they were getting rid of the kulaks, the, the Russians were blaming the kulaks for everything, these wealthy middle, uh, middle class peasants. And they were so successful in murdering and uh, kulaks that they had to keep expanding the definition of what a kulak was because they needed the kulak to blame. So eventually it became a point where they were like, a kulak is someone who thinks like a kulak. And then a kulak is someone who would think like a kulak if they could, right? In other words, you, the, the, the scapegoat is the thing that you think you want to get rid of, but you actually need it. And there's a profound enjoyment in that. You get the enjoyment of blaming someone. You get the enjoyment of sacrifice. You get the enjoyment of, of, the, of the struggle, but it's put onto somebody else. Emancipatory enjoyment is when I think you realize that there is no scapegoat like we're all in this that so it's almost like humor reactionary humor that takes the piss out of somebody else emancipatory humor takes the piss out of everybody um the clowning is a good example leona you do is like clowning every in clown workshops you take the piss out of yourself everyone takes the you know we're, we're all in this together we're all kind of like uh struggling so all of that to say i think that's the key is the point is the a liber an emancipatory enjoyment is one in which we directly embrace uh the contract so instead of we realize that the other the jewish community is really a reflection of me that that i'm pr projecting onto some other my own internal antagonisms but anyway do you want to come back to me on that Yes. And so the emancipatory element to me is like you're you're like undersigning proactivity in but it's like proactivity in its own fucking great way. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and the the reason why I think I mean AA is my go to example in this is that AA has twelve steps and you got the twelve steps that you can do that help you get over alcohol. But actually there's step zero. And step zero is you're just in a group of people in a circle where you're accepted for who you are without having to change so weirdly step zero of of aa is you just admit who you are you say i'm peter i'm an alcoholic because the funny thing is the, the the main defense mechanism of an alcoholic is denial so the whole thing about an alcoholic is they say i'm not an alcoholic i could give up any time i want it's 12 o'clock somewhere you know it's fine as we're in a, you know you can always drink in an airport whatever it is you say right um and um and and this is difficult because you go, well, what's the difference between denial and not being an alcoholic? I, if you say to me, are you an alcoholic? And I say, no, you go, well, that's what an alcoholic would say, right? We go like, well, the difference is denial is when you deny when you don't have to. So someone's like at a party, go, I'm just going to go down the road to get some al more alcohol. I mean, I'm not an alcoholic. Go, well, why are you telling me, right? You know, it's, it, that's denial in the sense the person is having to tell themselves. And then so in AA, whenever you're in a group that just accepts you for who you are, what you can do very gradually is you can admit to yourself your own reality. 
you can come to say, oh, I am an alcoholic. So the story that you tell yourself about yourself begins to now reflect the reality. That for me is that very moment in which you cultivate this ability to see your own repressed enjoyments, to see yourself and your dividedness is in and of itself what can now allow you to do the 12 steps to change. So ironically, not having to change at all is the very thing that allows the mechanism for change. Yeah. Which is why I think uh, self-help is inherently reactionary. It's inherently ideological because it's always about moving you from A to B and trying to give you ways of doing that, um, but not realizing that when you're healthy, it's easy to get to A to B. Like if someone's trying to write a book and I say to them, well, just write 500 words a day, super easy. That's just write a minimum of 500 words a day. Everyone kind of knows that. The point is I can't, I can't do it, right? So I'm like, don't do 500 words a day. Let's sit down and go, why do you get writer's block? What enjoyment are you getting out of it? What enjoyment are you getting out of not writing the book, right? Because there's some enjoyment you're getting from not writing the book. And then once you see the enjoyment directly, you can change it. Um, so yeah, uh, I've, I've used the example of a friend of mine, I've used it before, but who was always fight, his wife was always putting him in the doghouse, was always telling him he's bad, he's not good. And he hated this. And then he realized that, oh, hold on a second, as we were talking, he go like, you love to win people over and your wife loves to be one over. You're both getting your enjoyment. She's telling you off and making you feel bad because she wants you to then buy flowers and, and try to seduce her. And you love that. You love trying to seduce her. That's what you do for a living. That's what you do. So actually, you're both getting your enjoyment. You just are suffering through it. And as soon as he realized his enjoyment, he was like, oh, that's great. And then he was able to not change the relationship. Nothing changed in the relationship. He just was able to directly see his enjoyment. And that in itself changed the relationship. Sorry, I was waffling there. Anybody want to jump in or any other questions or comments from anybody? Mm. Um, I spent a lot of years in church pews where it wasn't that great. Yeah. But that place still required me to change mm -hmm. in some way. Yep. Or in many ways, depending on what pew it was. And mm -hmm. um, does a traditional church spin that fully accepts what grace is? Yeah, yeah. No, this is great because I think that for me, there's two ways in which you can form uh, a, a, a solidarity, community, and communion. Right. So, for me, a community is focused on a shared set of beliefs, a shared set of identities, or a shared enemy, or a shared set of practices. Right. So, so it's it's shared around some sort of positivity. A communion is a group that is brought together through a shared lack, 
a shared negativity. And for a lot of churches and other groups, they're oriented around a certain set of beliefs or certain set of practices that you have to do. So even grace is understood as, but you still have to do X, Y, and Z. And there's a certain identity. And that is how most groups form. That's how, like, that's basically how you have a group, have a shared enemy, have a shared identity. Have, you know, that, that, that's brilliant. Uh, but, and I think the only alternative is that, is, and this is what Church of the Contradiction is, is, is it possible to have a group of people who gather together not around what they share in common? Well, it is around what they share in common, and what they share in common is that they're all dead. They're all already dead. They're, we're all castrated. There is no uncastrated other. Um, and politically, I'll just do it. Um, you could say that contemporary society at the moment, we have on one side... Uh, people who and this is they're usually i'm going to use the term right and left but within very commas these are badly used terms but on what's called the right at the moment there is the embrace of what can be called positive universality so on the the right you have people talking about you know facts don't care about your feelings is a good example as in facts are universal they are true of anywhere in the universe feelings are particular and singular and you know we should be factual and so in terms of positive universals on the right, they will maybe advocate for meritocracy, right? We want a society of a meritocracy. And to a greater or lesser extent, that's what our Western institutions do. They, there's a certain meritocracy, blind under the law, except, et cetera, et cetera, right? Then the critique of that, with kind of the liberal critique of that, can be called, um, uh, is a type of intersectionality or particularity, which is, showing that all positive universals actually benefit some group, right? So under the guise of meritocracy, well, yeah, but that really benefits the wealthy. That benefits men, that benefits white people, whatever, right? So what, what that critique does is it, it tries to show how in, in every positive universal, there's hidden prejudices. There's hidden, uh, you know, some people getting privileges over others. And instead, what you have is multiplicity. So multiplicity is we all have different narratives, we all have different oppressions, uh, and that multiplicity uh, is, is, is embraced, right? What I'm talking about is the next step, which is the, so that's the positive, that's the critique. The, the Marxist kind of idea of the critique of critique is the kind of going, yes, you're right, every positive universal is actually usually, is, it helps somebody, right? But there is a universal in its negation itself. There is, there is something that we're all marked by, by dint of being a subject, and it's lack itself. So if you can build a collective not on the positive universal, not on multiplicity, but on negativity, that's, that's where it goes. I think that's, a, that's what a community of grace looks like based on negativity. Do you want to come back on that? Because this is, this is very important. This is an important kind of idea. <laughs> And this is all very abstract as well, but I want to make it concrete. So, you know, you can push me to make it concrete if you want. Yeah, yeah. Yes, <laughs> perfect. Yes, yes, yeah.
Well, I mean, like the Good Friday Agreement, I think is a perfect example of a political version of this where, you know, the, the conflict <coughs> was all scapegoating. Obviously, we weaponized identity in Northern Ireland. Some people say this was the place where identity politics was born as a political weapon. You know, so it's been argued. So we knew all of that. And then the Good Friday Agreement was the idea that we're going to tear each other apart. We're actually going to destroy each other. It's not about whether this is moral or immoral. It's just it's whether we survive or not. <laughs> and so every group had to come together in a room to have conflict, to symbolize and to argue and fight together and to to give up progressivism. That's the inter- So a progressive always knows where the future is. So a progressive goes like, right, I know what the future looks like and we have to get there. And so you can love someone who's not progressive, but in a patronizing way, as in, well, you're wrong, but whatever. But the Good Friday Agreement was apocalyptic. Apocalypticism, apocalyptic politics is where you don't know what the future looks like. You don't know what it looks like. All you know is that the present is wrong. And all you can do is lift up the present antagonism, look at it, symbolize it, and go, this present antagonism is is not good. And by doing that, the future erupts. But you don't know what the future is going to look like because the problem with the, with knowing the future is that's just an idealized form of the present. Just like sci-fi movies are just idealized versions of the present society. Right? You don't see the future in sci-fi movies. You see the present in idealized form. When we uh, try to fulfill our dreams, those are dreams that are organized around a certain political and cultural system. The idea is how do we dream new dreams? How do we get ourselves into a position? So with, with couples therapy, for example, you go to a couple goes to therapy. The point is to bring all the antagonisms of the relationship to the surface. Neither person nor the nor the analyst knows whether they're going to stay together or they're going to separate or they're going to separate with the type of relationship they had and stay together, right? But the only thing is for sure is that the present problem can't continue. That is when you bring the antagonism to the surface and let it be and have the conflict, the only thing that can't happen is the same. What opens up is the possibility of something new, something novel, something spontaneous. And this was the brilliant thing about Hegel. Hegel was so good at saying the philosopher does not know the future. The oil of Minerva spreads her wings at dusk, which means the philosopher can only analyze the current situation, can analyze the current antagonism, the current alienations, the current anxiety. But by bringing that to the surface, that ultimately allows for a transformation and a change to happen. And I know this is waffling, but this brings back the famous debate between Noam Chomsky and Foucault, Michel Foucault, was all about this. One of the most famous debates of the left. If you watch that debate, Chomsky, who's really good guy and interesting, but he was constantly saying that we can know the future and what the future should look like. And Foucault kept saying people who think they know the future, that's the oppressive thing. We don't, all we can do is critique the present, critique, 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 and the future erupts in you. Um, so I don't know why I was saying that, but <laughs> uh, that was related somehow to your question. Um, yeah. Any other thoughts? Any other questions? No, you're good. 
Okay, well, listen, thank you so much. What I'm going to do, this was a theoretical one. Next week, I want to look at uh, what this actually looks like. Because the whole point is, in a church, right, the front, the music, the spoken word, the ritual is a stand-in for absolute reality. That's kind of what it is. So whatever you hear from the front is kind of like you want that to be the answer. Whenever someone goes to church, they want they want the, the liturgy to kind of make them whole, to give them the answer. So next week, what I want to look at is what happens when a liturgy embraces doubt, ambiguity, and complexity. What happens when you hear alienation and anxiety within the liturgical structure itself? And how does that then help you actually enter into this experience? So that's next week. Thanks for uh, joining me for this one. I'll see you then. Bye-bye.